0: I know we got a lot of folks out this weekend. Some are traveling. There's flu going around everywhere. Uh, so we're glad that you're here with us this morning in person. If you're not in person and you're tuned in from the couch uh, with a thermometer in your mouth uh, or Advil close by, we're glad that you're tuned in there as well. Um, but this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, where we're going to be this morning for our sermon uh, if you are a guest with us, my name's Shannon i 'm one of the pastors here, and we 're glad you've chosen to join us this morning as we worship together. When you came in, you may have found a card like this somewhere around where you are seated. Uh, if you would be so kind as to fill out one of these cards this morning, if you 're a guest with us, we can drop it in the kiosk and the box of the kiosk in the back of the room, and we promise not to uh, show up on your doorstep or, or call you at dinner time. Uh, or spam you with a bunch of emails, all we want to do is be able to answer any questions you may have, send you some information about who we are, uh, and maybe get to know you a little bit. So uh, if you fill out one of those cards, or prayer requests, if there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it would be our honor to do that, because we don't believe anyone should have to carry those burdens alone. We don't want to walk alongside of people as they carry them. Uh, but we've been in a series together entitled Foundations, taking a look at Gen- the early portions of the book of Genesis. Uh, thinking about what it means to be clear-headed in the midst of a culture that is filled with confusion about all kinds of issues like, why are we here? Where did we come from? And there's no better way to get clarity than going back to the beginning and see how God has ordained everything with purpose. And so we've been working our way slowly through the first section of of the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, We'll pick up in verse 8 and read down through verse 24 together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you and you want to follow along there. But in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, we find these words recorded for us. This is following our first parents' taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and their eyes being open, recognizing they are naked, sewing fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. And we read in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's Word. Back in 2011, I can remember seeing the reports of this on the news, but in 2011, there was an earthquake that took place off the Pacific coast of Japan. It, was, it registered at 9.0 on the Richter scale. And it, it was an undersea earthquake there off, off, off of the, 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 uh, the o, Oshika Peninsula. It was the world's fourth largest earthquake since 1990 and the largest ever recorded with modern instrumentation in Japan. And the earthquake triggered, as a result of it, a powerful tsunami that had waves that reached up to heights of 40. Now, now this is mind-blowing, 40 meters, 40 meters, and it would eventually crash against the island of Japan. The earthquake moved one of the cities 2.4 meters east. And, we're, and scientists tell us that it shifted the Earth on its axis by estimates of ten to twenty-five centimeters. That's how powerful this earthquake was. It's a monumental. Shifting of the earth's crust and the tsunami that it created. Listen, it didn't stay isolated to one area, but it moved onto the shore of Japan and it obliterated tens of thousands of buildings, inundated them with floodwaters, devouring almost anything that stood in its path, causing widespread destruction and devastation. With an official count of around 20,000 people either killed or missing. The highest waves to hit the actual shores of Japan reached a total of 30 meters. In addition, all the water rushing in and the failure of the infrastructure caused a nuclear meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. This massive earthquake resulted in the largest crisis that Japan had ever faced since World War II and the dropping of the bombs upon its shores. Listen, that earthquake that took place deep beneath the earth's, the, 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 I'm sorry, deep beneath the, the, the surface of the ocean in the Pacific Ocean, right, caused massive destruction upon the island of Japan. Right? Because that massive earthquake did not stay isolated in that one area, but it had this, it raised this massive wall of water that inundated and flooded and destroyed much of the island. And church, I'm before you this morning to say this, the last two weeks we've talked about sin, what it is, its essence in nature. Last week we saw the pattern, how it works in our lives. This morning as we turn to the latter part of Genesis chapter 3, what we see set on the pages before us is not necessarily what sin is or how it works, but the impact that it has. And I say to you this this morning, that the impact of sin is like a tsunami. It's felt far removed from the epicenter of the earthquake. The earthquake took place in Genesis chapter 3, whenever our first parents took of the fruit and they ate, rebelling against God, communicating a disposition of distrust towards God, saying, God, we want to be our own people we want, to, we want to run and rule our own lives. But listen, that earthquake, that seismic shift, that cosmic reality that took place so many years ago has pushed forth a wall of water that continues to flood every generation, including the one in which we live today. Far removed from its epicenter. In Genesis 3, we see the impact of the most significant spiritual earthquake to ever hit humanity. And as a result, it's flooded everything and everyone and everywhere. Because it does not stay isolated. In the text that we just read this morning, you see in the wake of humanity's sin, God comes looking for them in the cool of the day, walking through the garden. And as he does, they hide themselves from the Lord God, from their covenant creator. And as they hide themselves, God goes seeking, right? It's a little game of hide and seek. Humanity's hiding, God is seeking, and he's been doing that ever since Genesis chapter 3 as well, by the way. He's been seeking a people for himself. From among all the peoples of the earth. Because this story plays itself out in every culture and in every place. But in the aftermath of that earthquake in Genesis chapter 3, you see this immediate impacts as they conceal and hide from the presence of God. But you also see these long-term impacts that sin has as God pronounces judgment upon humanity on account of their sin. Now listen, I know these last three weeks haven't been all like feel-good, bubbly messages. But listen, we're trying to get an understanding for why the world is the way that it is. If God made it good, how does everything in our lives so often look so hard? And how can things in the world seem so bad and evil? How do we reconcile those things? And the answer is sin. And sin and God's judgment upon sin in Genesis chapter 3 carries forward into every subsequent generation of humanity. And it it has flooded our lives in at least what I believe to be four ways that we see in this text this morning. So that's what I want us to look at this morning. How has sin flooded our lives like a tsunami that has inundated us? There's at least four ways, and then I want to give you some hope when we're done, because If I left you sitting in that, it would be very hard to go out of here today and try to talk with anyone this afternoon about anything that's good. Okay? So how has sin impacted us? Four ways. The first one is this. Sin has flooded the natural world. The natural order of things. There's a couple of places, I believe, that you see this in the passage that we just read this morning. In verse 16, all the ladies in the room, right? Right? the woman experiences god's judgment on account of taking of the fruit and eating it and the, the 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 judgment that she is cursed with we're told in the text is one of them is that she would have great pain in childbearing now i've never born a child myself obviously being a male right Um, But I have passed a kidney stone to which I've heard it compared before, okay? Um, And so if it's anything like passing a kidney stone, there's got to be significant mind-numbing pain associated with childbearing. And we're told in the text to the woman, he has said, I will multiply your pain. Like this joyous area of life that was intended to be the bringing forth of new life now is going to be saddled with all of this suffering. Because the pain of childbirth, although you can get a little shot in the spinal cord, right, that little epidural that can numb things out, right, you're still laboring in exhaustion to push forth this new life into the world. This maternity process and suffering became coexistive, connected together in God's judgment. And listen, the pain of. M- Of child rearing and bearing is not only limited to the actual physical pain of pushing out another human being. But listen, being if you're a mom in the room this morning, you know this. You know this because there's a lot of painful toil in raising those children as well. There's a lot of heartache involved. There's a lot of suffering involved with all of its, one commentator said, with all of its attendant joys, all the joys that come along with mothering, right? You celebrate whenever your kids are happy and flourishing and doing well, but a mother's heart is tied to her children in such a way that whenever they are suffering, whenever they are hurting, whenever they are struggling, a mother feels that as well. So it's not just the physical pain, but there's an emotional toil that comes along with giving birth to children. The natural process, the natural order of childbirth is now under the curse of the fall. Further down, the man is not left out of this. okay? Because further down, we see that the man is cursed now to work the ground that would be covered in thorns and thistles. Now, back before the fall, God ordains man's work okay So work in and of itself is not the result of the fall, but the fact that it would be painful, that it would be sweaty, that it would be hard, that you would have to be constantly clearing ground. you would clear ground one day, come back and there's more thorns and thistles on it the next day. All of that. Right? And that happens not only in farming, but that happens in every line of work, right? Just when you think that you've gotten something nailed and you've got a system in place to help it operate smoothly and efficiently, some other wrench gets thrown into the picture. A thorn or a thistle pops up, and there you've got to go back to the drawing board or begin to pluck those things out, right? So every type of labor is now hard. And all of this, listen, listen, not all of this, the, 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 the curse that falls on the labor and the work of man, the curse that falls on the childbearing and rearing of the woman, all of this points us to look for ultimate satisfaction in something other than the natural processes of life. Because they're never going to be enough now. When in truth they were always enough. Never enough. In verse 14, I think you also see this. The serpent is cursed to crawl on its belly in the dust. Now, there's some theologians that would speculate, well, before this, right, the serpent was up on upright, right, walking around with arms and a tail and like a slithering tongue, right? And he was talking and walking and all kinds of things, right? That may be the case. That's all pure speculation, okay? But what, what we know for sure about this curse for the serpent, why do snakes crawl on their belly? Right? I think they were still crawling on their belly at the very beginning. But why, So why does God curse them to slither in the dust for the rest of their existence? Here's what I believe is going on here. That this, this curse pronounced on the serpent, part of the natural order and process, was a humiliation for the way in which he had deceived the woman. Right? We're told elsewhere in the scriptures, right, that, that dust signifies humiliation. In Psalm 72, verse 9, may his enemies, enemies of God's anointed, lick the dust. You ever lick the dust? I've never licked the dust. I don't know if you've ever licked the dust. I've eaten mud pies as a kid. I can imagine it's very similar. Right? But if you imagine if, if you're down on the ground in front of someone with your face in the ground, with their boot on your Back, right? Your enemy is under your foot and you're licking the dust. That's a picture of humiliation, of being conquered. Or you see in Micah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 49, the prophets saying they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, speaking of God's enemies on the day of his judgment. See, the snake had exalted itself above man to deceive the woman. And so now he's humiliated under man to crawl on his belly for the rest of his existence. Because what you have happening in the text, right, is you have the the serpent deceiving the woman, the woman listening to the serpent, the man listening to the woman, and no one is listening to God. (laughs) And So the natural order is now broken. In fact, we're told further into the Scriptures in Romans chapter 8. Paul's going to say this in Romans chapter 8. He's going to say, for So, the natural order has been impacted by sin. The natural world has been impacted by sin insofar as every earthquake, every tsunami, every tornado, every hurricane, every wildfire that ravages communities, every blizzard that drops feet of snow and sub-zero temperatures, every drought that is experienced, and every flood is a groan of creation. It's groaning. The natural world is broken because of sin. But not only is the natural world broken because of sin, listen, our spiritual lives are broken because of sin. Second, notice that when the Lord God comes looking for our first parents after they eat, their first inclination is to do what? To hide from the presence of God. And we have been hiding ever since as human beings. We've hidden in all kinds of ways, church. All kinds of ways. There are some who hide through a works righteousness. They think that if they can be good enough, smart enough, and convince enough people to like them, they can be popular enough, they can be kind enough, right? Through this works-based righteousness, if they can be good enough, then indeed, they don't need to deal with the face of God or the presence of God. So there are some who, through works-righteousness, are hiding from God, thinking they can, they can outrun His judgment. There are some who are hiding through relativistic approaches to truth. Listen, the reason our first parents shrink away and hide is because they're ashamed. They shrink in shame. And listen, there's only a handful of ways that you can deal with shame in your life. And one of them, listen, over the course of the last 20 years, I believe the movement within our culture toward a relativistic understanding of truth. You know what relativistic understanding of truth means right relativism is relativism is essentially this it says what's true for you is true for me what's true for me is true for me what's true for me may not be true for you and what's true for you may not be true for me because we all have our own truth there is no absolute standard to which we measure ourselves there is no higher truth to which we are all accountable that's what relativism says And I believe that the rampant growth of relativism within Western culture over the last 20 years is an attempt to deal with shame that we feel on account of a rebellion against God. Because if we can say there is no absolute standard to which everyone must be measured, if everyone can define truth for themselves, then there's no reason that you should have to feel shame about any of your thoughts, about any of your desires, or about any of your actions. There's no reason to feel shame about any of those things because they're true for you. That's what relativism says. And yet our first parents don't say, hey, God, what's true for us is taking of that tree that you told us not to eat. And so we're all good. Look at us. But what do they do when they take of the tree? Their eyes are open. They don't like what they see. They cover themselves up. And when God comes to fellowship with them, they pull away from his presence. Out of shame. It's broken us spiritually. Spiritually. And while the clock, listen church, on physical death started to tick that day because eventually we said a couple of weeks ago or last week that Adam would die, there was another kind of death that entered immediately, a spiritual death or a separation from God. Look down in verses 22 to 24 as they are exiled from Eden. We see God banishes the man and the woman from the garden. When once they are driven out, though, here's what happens: God places an angelic being, a cherubim, along with a flaming sword that turns in every direction, north, south, east and west. And what that is is a picture of God setting in place a boundary that could not be crossed. In other words, there is no way for humanity on its own to get back to the presence of God. There is no way for humanity in and of itself to find eternal life, to take hold of that tree because God is guarding it from every direction. So there's nothing that man can do To get back to the presence of God. And this is the state that every human being born following the fall is born into. Cut off from the source of life. Bent by sin. And separated from God. Spiritually dead. In their transgressions. Because sin. Listen. It's like a tsunami. It floods our lives spiritually. Third. Third, sin also floods our relational dynamics. Listen, in Genesis chapter 2, we saw that God ordained marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime of covenant relationship. And yet here, post-fall, we see that that relationship is not going to be easy. It's going to be filled with strife and at times division. In verse 16, we read, when God speaks to the woman... He says, God says, your desire shall be for your husband or contrary to your husband, some translations say, but he shall rule over you. Now, the woman's desire, listen, would be very much like the desire of sin to master Cain, as we'll see next week in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. It wants to control Cain. And so what God is saying is you will want to be in control of your husband, but your husband will rule over you. There is that dynamic of which I believe God sets up a healthy headship in the pre-fall order, which is restored through Christ, as we'll see in a minute. But when sin enters the world, that healthy headship is corrupted. It's broken. Right? Your desire shall be for your husband. You'll want to control. You will want to... To, to, to dic- you want to dictate, and the husband's going to squash that and be like a dictator in the home. Right? And so wives will, will see basically what I believe this is saying is wives are going to seek to control their husbands, but the husband's going to crush that and lead in an unhealthy way, oftentimes. I think the way you see this so frequently in marriages is that there is both domination. As the sin of the husband and the manipulation is the sin of the wife. As they try to both get their own way. This covenant relationship in which they are fully known, fully loved, gets corrupted by sin and becomes broken in the fall. And listen, anyone who's ever been married, and even the best and healthiest of marriages Has experienced this frustration. Has experienced this pain. We've all known that. We've all probably shed tears about it. And my wife wants to go in a different direction. My husband wants to go in a different direction. I'm not with them on this. Why can't they just? Huh? I'm probably the only one who's ever said that. Okay? Right? If they would just see it my way, then all of our problems would be fixed. That is the tendency in a post-fall world in which sin has entered, judgment has been pronounced, that this relationship would be one of the most beautiful things. That God has ever created. But also and sometimes simultaneously one of the most brutal. And listen that is particularly true of the marriage relationship. But those seeds. Those seeds of mistrust have impacted every other human relationship as well. The relationship between parents and kids. Right? Which may be one reason why kids think they know everything when they turn like. 11. And then again when they turn 18. And then again when they turn 25. Until they have children of their own, they realize they don't know everything. Right? These seeds of mistrust between boss and employee, sometimes between pastor and people. It has flooded our relational dynamics. But finally, I believe sin also we see in this text has flooded our physical realities, our physical bodies. One of the things that was very clear from the outset of the story in Genesis was that God had clearly stated that the day in which they ate of at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. So it should come as no surprise if you're reading the text thoughtfully that in verse 19 when God speaks to the man and pronounces judgment that what he said would surely happen is central to the judgment that is pronounced he says in verse 19 by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you were dust and to dust you shall return the judgment of death And this is exactly why physical suffering, sickness, disease, decay, and death exist because sin has flooded our physical bodies. Our physical bodies. Which is why the older you get, the more stuff hurts. Yeah, come on. Which is why you have unexpected diagnoses. Which is why you lose people in the matter of a moment that you thought would be here and outlive you. It's the curse of sin. It floods our relational dynamics, our spiritual lives, our natural world, and our physical bodies. Now, I don't want to leave you there this morning. But all those things are true. And if all that is true, then where do we look for hope? And church, I'm here to tell you this morning, there's only one place to find it. You can look for it in a lot of places. But there is only one place to find it. And I will say it this way, that we must look to Christ for hope. In verse 15, we find what I believe to be an incredible gospel prophecy. When God's pronouncing judgment upon the serpent, he says, because you have done this, you've deceived the woman, Curse to you to crawl on, the, on, on your belly all of your life. Now, most commentators and theologians, when they look at the curse pronounced upon the serpent, they say, this is both a, a curse upon this animal, but also a curse upon the actor behind the animal. Okay, So the serpent's crawling on its belly for the rest of its life and Satan himself is also under the judgment of God on account of sin because God says to the serpent and to Satan by extension, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, he shall bruise your head and you shall, shall bruise his heel. Now this is what many theologians have called the first gospel proclamation in the Bible, the first publishing of good news. And what's the good news? That one day, a woman who is now giving birth in great pain, right? Through childbearing, that out of her womb would one day come a seed, A singular seed, right? That's a singular pronoun. A singular seed who would crush the head of the serpent. I've crushed the head of a serpent before in my life. Okay? A snake that was curled up on my buddy's front porch that we spent 30 minutes looking for. Okay? And crushed it with a shovel and its brain splattered everywhere All over the front porch and the door, all right? It was glorious. (laughs) It was glorious. But I am not the seed. And that was not the serpent. God says to Satan, there is going to be this great cosmic battle between you and humanity. You see it as well. In Revelation chapter 12, right? If I had time, I would take you there. In Revelation chapter 12, as the serpent, the great dragon's pursuing the woman who's about to give birth. But listen, there's this great cosmic conflict between the Satan and the seeds, seed of the woman, between humanity, until one day a singular seed would rise up and would crush the head of the devil. Would crush the head of the tempter. Would splatter his brains on the porch. If I could be so graphic. Would crush his head. But not before he struck his heel. See the way that God deals with the devil. The way that he deals with the serpent. The way that he deals with Satan the tempter. Is to destroy his works through the sending of a seed, and from this point forward, listen. The prophets looked for him. From this point forward, the patriarchs looked for him. Right? There's a. There we'll see in the next couple of weeks. There is. Cain, who is brought forth, and Abel, uh, one righteous seed, one unrighteous seed. The righteous seed is slain by the unrighteous seed. Then there's another righteous seed in Seth. Is he the one? No, he's not the one. And then the ones who come from him are. Is he the one? No, he's. And you go through all the genealogies. Like, why are all those things in there? I don't know who all those people were, but every time this child, a son was born in this righteous line of people who were God-fearing and walking with Him, they were saying, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? The patriarchs and prophets looked forward to His arrival until one day we're told in the book of Ephesians that in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, When the time was right, God sent His own Son into the world. That Jesus Christ, the very eternal Son of God from before the foundations of the world, is incarnate, born of a woman, born of a virgin, the sinless Savior. And listen, we're told as well that the serpent, that Satan would strike his heel. And he does. As Jesus goes to the cross, his heel is struck. But through the resurrection, I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that the head of the serpent was crushed. It was crushed. That's why Paul would say he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. that he is the seed of genesis 3:15 and for those who trust in him who hope in him listen though sin has flooded our physical lives and resulted in death there is resurrection he's overturned death Through resurrection for those who hope in him, in Christ, this strife and relational disharmony is healed by service. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're told husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? By serving her, sacrificing for her, giving his life away for her. That's how you exercise headship. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, right? And so you see, with this desire to wrangle for control becomes this call to service and submission. It's a beautiful thing that's renewed in Christ. In Christ, separation, estrangement from God, being set outside the garden is replaced by reconciliation because in Colossians, Paul tells us that Jesus has made peace with God through the blood of His cross, that we've been reconciled to the Father, having relationships with Him now as His sons and daughters. And in fact, He doesn't even just say daughters, He says sons because all of God's children share in the inheritance coming to the sons in the ancient world. All of that comes to us male and female. And in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled. In Christ, the groanings of creation are replaced with joy one day. When they are set free at the revelation of the children of God. See, everything that sin flooded, everything... I don't know if that gets you excited this morning, but everything that sin flooded, Christ drains. So hope in Him. There's so much more that could be said out of Genesis chapter 3. But sin has impacted every generation. And God has, God has set in motion from the foundations of the world a plan to reverse everything that sin has flooded. All that water that is pushed in will one day recede into this glorious new creation. So hope, hope. In Him, in the first fruits of that creation, through Christ in His resurrection, and through the filling of the Holy Spirit, church, the down payment of that inheritance that you will experience one day if you're in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we know that sin has been defeated that its penalty for those in Christ has been overturned because Christ Himself bore our guilt as His heel was struck. But in the striking of His heel, our great adversary could not have foreseen Himself the victory that would be won through that. And the crushing of his head. Father, in Christ, the power of sin we've been set free from, as we saw last week. But we recognize that in this world in this life, the presence of sin is still, sin is still pervasive. It has flooded every area of our lives, every aspect of who we are. And in so doing. Our first parents went from enjoying Your presence in a garden to fleeing from Your presence in a jungle. But through the sending of Your Son, You set forth a plan to renew all things that have been lost. To bring to life through resurrection those who have died. To reconcile those who are separated and far from You. To bring joy to all of creation so that the rocks would cry out in praise. And they would sing one day with all of their voices in a renewed material world. And to bring peace where there was once strife in human relationships. Through service and submission. Father, may that be our hope and nothing less. Whatever other lesser hopes we have been looking to, to deal with sin in our lives, to deal with sin in our communities, to deal with sin in our cultures, I pray that we would turn aside from false hopes and place our hope in the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our only hope to restore all that sin has broken. Fathers, we sing this morning, may our hearts rejoice in Him as the expression of your love for us, fallen though we may be. We pray it in Jesus' name. I invite you to stand this morning church as we sing and lift our voices together rejoicing in the love of God for his fallen and wayward children that he came seeking us when we were hiding from him and if you're in him this morning may you lift your voice in your heart declaring how great is his love for us let's sing together